Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a first-time-ever podcast. I am interviewing the man, the myth, the legend, Daniel Reese, Case Fuel's creative director. And why this is a first time for me is because Daniel is a person I speak to damn near every day because he is Case Fuel's creative director. But I'm very excited to uh, be able to take advantage of the interview format to ask him some questions that would be really weird for us to ask on a day-to-day basis. But Daniel also has a fascinating backstory that I really want to get into. You know, he's been doing super well at Case Fuel and he made it to Case Fuel for a reason. So Really excited to go into that and also go just a lot of the questions that we hear all the time from clients coming into the program and, you know, just a lot of stuff that should be really good. So we're, we're hitting the record here and just seeing where it goes, but um, thank you for coming on the show, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Excited to be here. Excited to get into the weeds and provide some value for the listeners. Awesome. So I wanted to get started. So as we said in the introduction and for anyone who's an active case to a client, they may know you for your chops as far as a copywriter, but you are truly a multimedia creative. So do you mind telling us a little bit about how you kind of got into video production and kind of stuff and like your early days of, of kind of getting off the, the ground of this stuff? Yeah. So I think going back to the early days, and I actually write about this in, in a book I published last year, but basically when I was young in kindergarten, my teacher, even if I went back to her to this day, she remembers me as being the guy that liked to draw and do like a bunch of really artsy stuff to the point where it's become a funny story that I'm able to share with people that when I was a kid, I found a Sharpie in my parents' brand new house, colored all over the walls, all over the floors, all over everything. And that has become this like iconic story of people that know me because the creativity that I had as a child never really left. And I was able to basically leverage this system where every single year almost, I try to find something that's a new creative hobby to leverage my time and resources towards because at the end of the day, creativity is one of the most important skills you can ever develop because it's useful in literally every single area of life. Mm -hmm. So we start out with interior design. (laughs) Where did it go? (laughs) I guess you could call it that. (laughs) And then where did it go from there? Because like, I know it's kind of funny too, because I get to see, uh, you know, knowing you, all the different things that you do, because you're you're a visual artist, you are a recording artist. Um, I know you used to have a huge career on in video as well, but like, how did those things kind of evolve? Like, what did the path look like from the beginning? Yeah, I think from the beginning, you know, the first thing that came to mind for me was back when YouTube was at its initial inception, I got really lucky with a guy who used to do those videos with, and one of our videos went viral, accumulated around 5 million views. And with that visibility, we were able to just leverage some new relationships. And I always remember at the time, the most popular guy on YouTube had a million subscribers, right? And I don't know what the you know most popular guy is right now, but it's probably in the 100 million. So I think being able to be an early adopter to that and just try to create opportunity from that and utilize new relationships, everything kind of took off from there, at least from a professional level. No, this is a question I never really asked. Like, What was the channel about? <laughs> yeah. So the channel was mostly like a parody sort of uh, YouTube channel. We just made a lot of really silly, embarrassing videos. Most of them were just song parodies, like, you know, think Weird Al or something. And then others were maybe like SNL sort of skits where we got to 
just think of ideas on the fly and say, what if we put this to life and just kind of took it from there? Yeah. It's kind of funny. Cause like when I think about like the early days and like, I was not producing anything at the time, but I was definitely con- consuming quite a lot of uh, video content. But like, I just remember in high school, like you go on like newgrounds.com and like, there was a time where you could really be like a couple guys making videos like that. And if the content was good, it would get out there. I kind of miss that sometimes these days. Like, I feel like it's, you know, no one really has the attention span for skits these days, but yeah, man, it's a, uh, it's a different world than it was at that point too. But like, you know, w- when that was kind of going on, like, were there any like crazy stories? Like what was like, you know, the, the wildest stuff that ended up happening when you're like a YouTube star? <laughs> yeah. So those skits became, I mean, I guess skits are now like basically TikToks. So we've, there's still a format for it. I guess now because we compete with the attention span of goldfish, we just have to, <laughs> we have to get to the point a lot quicker. So, I mean, there are a lot of crazy stories, but the first thing that came to mind for me was I remember once I was, you know, kind of getting out there when you're that young, you know, in high school, you don't ever think that more than a few people are going to see these videos or, you know, memorize lyrics to songs that you've created in your, your room when you live with your parents, that sort of thing. And at the time, I was working at Radio Shack, if that's still a thing now, but I remember this girl that came in and there was a particular video that was making its rounds on the internet and she recognized my face from that and she started quoting things on that video. And that was when I realized like, okay, there's really like a lot more reach to this than, than I can imagine. And so instead of making just the silly videos that you don't think anyone will see, you try to redirect that into what do you actually want to start creating that you have fun with and that other people can enjoy. And that's kind of consistent with your values. Mm-hmm. And then were you ever able to monetize that channel? Cause like, I know at some point you ended up starting an agency as well, but what was kind of like the intervening years or like that thing after like the YouTube stuff ended up peaking? Yeah. So we kind of took off like a rocket ship, you know, started off really slow and then the notoriety sort of accumulated. But unfortunately the guy that I was doing videos with, he made a lot of really poor decisions I think he had Crohn's disease at some point, so he was dealing with that. Mm. And then he also just started hanging around the wrong people. And I think things happened so quickly that he wasn't able to really manage it. And I do recall him just getting into a lot of trouble with the law and stuff. So I think that oh, yeah, derailed okay. a lot of it. So the band broke up. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Okay, gotcha. And then at that point too, were you like, you know, how did it end up getting parlayed into like the agency when you ended up starting that? Yeah, you know, I think because we had such a good thing going. I had this this hint of vengeance like, <laughs> that motivated me in a way to keep those things going because I enjoyed everything that we did at that point. But once he started to kind of get derailed a bit, I saw the opportunity that we had in front of us. And I realized that, you know, in most people's lives, they may only have one to three opportunities that are presented to them that can change their life. And I think that was one of those moments for me. So by not wanting to let go of that, I tried to course correct and say, okay, well, now that he's gone, what else can I do or what else do I need to learn to make sure that I can still make something of this opportunity, whether it's YouTube or something else? Mm-hmm. And then at some point, of course, like you had to get into copywriting too. So like, when did you end up getting that added into the mix? Yeah. So copywriting, it's really interesting because I actually have a, a short blog written about this. And the big thing was, I recall looking this, this video up, I was having a discussion with a friend and Long story short, we were talking about basically if there were such a thing as underwear that blocks the scent of farts, right? (laughs) (laughs) And we didn't know if it existed or not. So I looked it up in my infinite curiosity on Google 
I found out that it did exist. And I thought, okay, cool. Well, they have a product for everything now. And so after I did that, the ads for those, you know, fart blocking underwears were following me all over the internet. And I realized at some point, like, how, how is this following me around all the time? And on top of that, I was also getting ads from other marketers, from other agencies that were teaching you how to, you know, start an agency or do copy. And once I went through that whole funnel process and was, you know, sold on it and had to, you know, pay $2,000 on a whim on my credit card, they did the sale for me. And in hindsight, I'm realizing that they knew all of my wants and desires before I even entered that funnel because I was their target audience. And, you know, a lot of times people have this discomfort with being hard sold. And obviously there was some discomfort there, but I'm glad that I had that because I didn't always think of discomfort as a good thing. It was like something that you want to stray away from where you don't want to be sold. You don't want to be talked to. But when you're presented in front of a product or service where the person who's selling that product or service knows exactly what the benefits are and knows exactly who their target audience is, and that's you, then you end up being thankful that somebody uh, took the time to make you as a customer avatar and sell you that product or service. So the rest is history from there. Yeah, for real. And like, it's kind of interesting too, because I, well, I definitely didn't know about the fart blocking underwear story. That was a new one for me. But it's kind of interesting how like, you know, this whole underbelly of the digital marketing world kind of exposed itself. But um, you bring up a really good point too. And it's like, this is something that we talk about a lot on the client success team, where it's like, you know, a lot of the times we try to compare what we do for clients to like personal trainers, right? And yeah. if people come to us for a goal and it's like, if, if, you know, if you come to a personal trainer with a goal of, of being in shape, it's like, you know, they're not going to be your buddy. If they're your buddy the, the whole time, then you're not going to be in a position that's any different than when you signed up for somebody. And it's a similar thing with the sales process, whether it was a person who was selling you, whether, or it's, you know, if it's you, the attorney listening to this, getting somebody to make the right call for their family, if it's estate planning or, you know, their situation, or if it's some other type of law, it's like you sometimes can't be somebody's friend and get them to do what they need to do at the same time. You know, the best case exactly. scenario is if you can avoid it, but at the same time too. So let's talk a little bit more about like the customer avatar stuff too. So it's like, that was something that you kind of made. I mean, if, if I'm following correctly, it's like you sort of saw how the result of the magic trick, and then you were kind of able to flip the needlework template around and kind of see things from the other side, right? Exactly. And that's a really good way of putting it because once I was sold and brought to the other side, it's basically like finding out how magic works. Like, you know, I didn't stumble upon this by happenstance. They didn't have to, you know, think of any objections that I had on the whim because all this stuff was already pre-planned. So they were far more prepared than I was and I'm glad they were. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think there's also a huge lesson there. And um, it's kind of funny too, because it's like, you know, I feel like one of the the best courses for learning this too, and that actually might segue us to a little bit too, because um, another interesting part of the story is that you didn't originally come to Case Fuel as a copywriter. You came in yeah. as our director of sales before too. So let's talk a little bit about like the connection between sales and copywriting. Like, how do you think about the interaction of those two like disciplines? Yeah, there's definitely a psychological Venn diagram between copywriting and sales, because they both involve understanding your audience before you can take any action on them. So, you know, at the end of the day, information without emotion isn't retained, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's an emotional aspect that people have to be bought in towards. And those emotions are already there. We're not creating new energy or taking away energy. We're just redirecting their energy to the right solution. And so both of those start from zero. When somebody doesn't know who you are, the first question in their head is, why should I care about what Daniel Reese wants to say? Or why should I care about what this, this ad says? And there's a thousand other people 
and products and services that are fighting for your attention on a daily basis. So I think having having a you know USP that can establish trust and credibility to speak with you know the same vernacular of your audience, finding out how they talk, what their fears are, what actually motivates them to do anything is super important. But it's also important to realize in both copy and sales, while there is a formula, there is no one way to get there, right? So there are multiple paths, but they all need to involve some sort of passion and conviction for the client and the problem they're facing. Yeah. And I think it's super interesting. And um, just to, to pause too, for, for anyone who's not familiar with the term, what do you mean by a USP? Yeah. So USP would be like your unique selling proposition. And I guess to kind of go a little deeper into the weeds on that, something that might set you apart from anyone else, whether that is, you know, a little quirk about you, like, you know, did you used to be an actor? Did you used to be a chef or something? And one thing that I've thought about a lot since I've done, you know, the copywriting thing, everyone's going to have that one skill that they just go all in on and become an expert at. But I think it becomes a little more powerful if you can leverage two different skills and combine them into a hybrid, because then you're less likely to have that same type of competitor. So I actually spoke with a a lawyer on one of our sessions, I think it was a week ago. And when I looked on his website, just to figure out kind of what he was about, I saw that he was also an actor at some point in California. So going from an actor to a lawyer is, is a really interesting combination that you don't get to see too often. And there's unique advantages that that provides that you know, just a typical lawyer would have, or maybe a lawyer who professional dancer or something like, I don't know. And if you combine any creative hobby with another one, then you just get something that you don't really get to see too often. Yeah. That's interesting. I definitely want to bookmark that to come by because this could have been the segue of the century to talk about the the (laughs) webinar copywriting stuff, but yeah, just to kind of hang on that for a little bit. It's, really important to have these things too. And kind of going back to uh, the, the whole concept of the USP too, like one of the things and what we're kind of getting at is, you know, having been on both sides of it, which you have, and which a lot of the situation for you know anyone that's running marketing as an attorney has, it's like your marketing is going to set up your sales. And again, I do like to use the word sales in terms of intake. I think people shouldn't shy away from that. Uh, right. We got that one from Moshe himself. But in the same way, and this is like kind of a, I think this is a, I believe I talked about in the hundredth episode, the sales informs the marketing. In a lot of ways too, if you have deals that are closing every single day, you don't necessarily know where the edges of your system are. But if you're bumping your head against the wall and figuring out why people say no, you can make sure to say the thing that prevents them from saying no in the future. So the more activity that you're getting on the other side, it actually will inform the marketing to make your next conversation more early, which a lot of people don't realize. And if you kind of accept that basic premise, the only way that you're not going to be making your business better at getting more clients is by not trying pretty much. So I think a lot of people are way too afraid of failure and it kind of stops them from getting started in the first place, which is definitely a whole other sort of second of uh, circumstances, but yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. We could talk about failure for an entire hour if we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the, the webinar stuff too. So basically um, to fill everyone in too. So you've been actually writing webinars for our, uh, you know, our seminar 3.0 program for quite some time at this point. So I'm sure a lot of people are curious, like, you know, what's working these days in terms of, you know, estate planning webinars and, you know, what misconceptions might people have? Yeah. So I think to answer the first part of that question, we want to talk about basically what's working right now, because this does come down to some type of formula. Mm-hmm. And for people who are afraid to fail, you know, your first webinar, your first anything isn't going to be as great as once you make enough mistakes, you just want to make those mistakes as quickly as you can. Uh, I don't know who says the quote, fail fast, 
you know, fail often because what remains are the things that work. And once you have what works, success will leave clues behind. And then you know exactly what people are interested in, what people aren't interested in. And then you can further tighten that process as much as you can, because all the great webinars out there aren't webinars that started that way. They started off as maybe some basic premise and was able to build from there through those mistakes. But I would say an area where a lot of people can mess things up. There's a couple things here. And it's funny because attorneys are typically good at arguing, so they might be less susceptible to coaching and being highlighted for what these issues can be. But I've noticed that a lot of these attorneys, you know, they went to school to be excellent lawyers, right? So they don't always have the time to be excellent marketers in a lot of cases, um, unless they're just lucky enough to have had the time to focus directly on that marketing. So a lot of times attorneys think that they can do literally everything on their own without having to have a team. And I always use this analogy of like the Avengers, right? So with the Avengers, each one of those superheroes has their own separate abilities, all their unique quirks about them and so on, right? So I think Iron Man can't do the same thing that Spider-Man does. Spider-Man can't do the same thing that Black Panther does. And when you're able to solely go all in on the one thing that you're really, really well at, and then getting those other roles in your firm or your business to go all in on the things that they're really well at, then you build this cohesive thing where everyone's firing on all cylinders, right? Because you can't necessarily expect the marketer to be the same person that does the sales and the same person that does the copywriting and the same person that does the intros and writes the plans. Everyone has to have the time and resources to do what they're really good at and double down on those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree too. And like another thing I'd want to add is like, basically you could theoretically think about like the day where you're doing all those things. But I think one of the more important things as time goes on is like, what are the years going to look like? If you're doing something 15 minutes a day, once every couple of weeks, you're never really going to get good at that thing. It's like, you're just not going to have the, you know, the frequency and the ability to like implement differently the next time too, which like, I'm a huge fan of specialization for that reason as well. And like, basically for at this point too, like, you know, your job, which, you know, every single time that you have somebody in one of these copywriting sessions, so your job during that session is like, you basically need to make the attorney look as good as possible. Right. So like, how do you like, you know, what are the ways that you, um, you know, that you've been doing that and making people may like come off as experts when, when they're coming into this webinar, even if it's something that they haven't done before? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think a big part of it is setting the expectation for those guys as soon as they come in, because you know, you may start a session and, you know, lawyer number one might expect it to go a very specific way. And if you don't guide their expectations, then they might be feeling, you know, some level of disappointment because they expect a particular outcome. And a good example of that is a lot of attorneys as well. And this is kind of going to your previous question of how they can mess some of this stuff up. But a lot of them think that in-person webinars will convert directly to online, where if they just take their presentation that they did in person and just, you know, film it and then move it online that it will convert the same or have the same audience. And that's just not the case. You know, there are so many other parameters that go behind closed doors that need to be put in place. And the language needs to change a little bit as well, because it's just a whole different mindset. And we say this all the time where, you know, somebody on a webinar, for them to stay longer, to not have to click exit out the window or to, you know, get on their phone or have distractions from their spouse or their dogs, you know, they have a litany of distractions that they don't have in person where you're obligated to, you know, stay in a room, especially if somebody has given you 
cookies and ice cream and stuff. So this, this obligation is very different when you move online. So you just have to really be more on your A game, I guess, when you move online. You can't make the same mistakes that you would in person. Yeah, I would say in addition to those expectations, really figuring out you know, the, the stories that people are telling that they've experienced, because I think that's kind of the secret sauce for our webinars is getting people to tell stories and experiences that they themselves have dealt with for why they want to avoid a bad situation and what happens when they have good situations. And that just goes back to what I said about information without emotion not being retained. By them being able to tell their own personal stories, they have a little more conviction than just saying, this is what could happen. But it's instead it's, you know, hey, my parents got this this trust done or this will done and now now they're set up. Yeah. I actually want to, you know, it's kind of an interesting position to, to kind of change into like the differences that we see in people's presentation styles. And I think the story thing is kind of a hack too, because you don't necessarily have to be like, you know, a, a carnival barker to like, you know, keep people's attention with a good story because a well-told story can carry attention pretty well. I think we're kind of hardwired to that at some point, but what's your advice for people on, you know, how they're actually showing up to the, the webinar, whether they're doing it live or, or whether it's something that they're recording? Yeah, I would say if you're showing up, then you have to show up with that that passion and that conviction to help the problems that your clients have. Because at least in most lawyer scenarios, when people are coming to you, they're not always going to be happy, especially if you're doing crisis planning. So by you being able to empathize with people and understand that, you know, this is not a fun situation to go through if if you're having to go through probate or if your family's being ripped apart and let alone all that happening in the middle of a pandemic, where there are already other external things that exacerbate a lot of situations in their lives. So I think by being able to speak in a way that they understand, it helps them feel understood. It helps them feel like like you actually know what it's like to go through these situations and that you have a solution to prevent those from happening, or at least finding the best scenario out of the worst set of options. Yeah. So it's almost like the empathy is kind of the key element there, would you say? Yeah. I mean, I would take that even further and say that empathy is is kind of a superpower. I think we live in a world where empathy is not as common as it should be. So by being able to connect with people on that level, that opens a door for a lot of additional opportunity. Yeah. And I think it's a crazy thing too, because like, especially, and, and it's interesting because, you know, you and I have both been in these different roles as far as, you know, talking to clients as prospects and also talking in these copywriting sessions. I mean, way back when it was when I was doing it, but you know, you see a couple of different flavors. And again, most of our experience in the last couple of years has been reserved to estate planning attorneys, but you kind of have like the spectrum, like you have sort of the extroverted front of house type attorney, and then you have the introverted, like the mastermind type attorney as well. And I think one of the things that I remember seeing often is like, you know, you have these guys that are so brilliant and in the realm of estate planning, like they're doing the craziest stuff that pushes the field board and they're making sure that people are protected in ways that are completely non-standard and doing a way better job for clients. But some of these guys are the least able to communicate that because <laughs> they assume everyone's as smart as they are. Right. right. So like kind of like a curse of knowledge kind of perspective. Yeah. So I like what you said about the introvert and the extrovert thing, because a common misconception among introverts as well is that they might not be as good at selling or doing webinars or just speaking with people. And the reality is that they have a unique advantage that extroverts don't have. And that's because, you know, if you're at a public function somewhere, as an extrovert, you can handle small talk all day. And that's the one thing that introverts hate is just that small talk across a thousand people, the whole like, what do you do? How long have you done this? They're answering this question a bazillion times. 
while at the same time having this social battery that's running low and being wasted on these conversations that don't have a lot of substance. So the advantage that a lot of introverted people have is the ability to go deep with their clients and their prospects, because those are the things that make their conversations worthwhile when they can actually get to know people beyond a surface level and get to know what makes them tick, what makes them happy, and what just makes them passionate to get up out of bed in the morning. Mm, that's really interesting. And I guess I've never asked you this question. Don't, don't be worried. <laughs> Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? That's a really interesting question, just because I don't get that too often. So I would say for the most part, I would consider myself to be an extrovert because it's funny. When I was a kid, I was actually really shy until I started playing football in the eighth grade. So I played sports for about 12 years, football, baseball, soccer, and wrestling. But the thing with football was it was eighth grade and my coach, he told me he was going to make me a running back, right? And I didn't even know what the heck that was at the time that he said it to me. I was just there showing up, just trying to figure out how to be on the team and how to you know, get out of my comfort zone a little bit, which he, he dragged me way beyond my comfort zone because he told me, you know, I'm going to make you a running back. I'm going to make you a leader. You're going to sit at the front of every class. You're going to volunteer for every teacher question anytime she needs to volunteer. And that was basically eighth grade forward. And as I, you know, got my comfort zone completely destroyed, I realized how much I enjoyed talking to people. And I also started to develop this idea that that everyone liked going deep and connecting with people to, on the same level that I did. And so when you get older, it's kind of a disappointment that you realize <laughs> how many people are not like that. And that, you know, being able to connect with people and, and genuinely enjoy learning people is in itself a skill because every single person is different. Everyone has their own story. And I almost liken it to a puzzle, you know, because we all have so many different experiences and encounters that inform our worldviews that are always changing and evolving. And just by being able to, you know, reach into somebody's soul, for lack of a better word, figuring out what makes them tick is it's always just fun. And once you can get to that point and go deep and have conversations that leave people better off than they were before you met them, it's always a really satisfying experience. Now, I will also say for the introvert extrovert thing, it's not so much a kind of binary I think it's more of a gray area because people can be introverted and extroverted in certain scenarios. Mm. So, you know, if I go to the grocery store or the gym, I kind of become an extrovert because I don't want to have a lot of conversations out in places like that. But, you know, if I go out to, I don't know, a bar, public event, then I've never met a stranger. Yeah. Well, because it's interesting. And this was a, a sort of direction I was having a conversation would go because it's like, you know, you kind of have this almost like learned extroversion. And almost like a reluctant approach to like, you know, you were kind of thrust into the position of having to become a leader. Like, I think a lot of attorneys who don't realize when they want to start this journey of growing their firm, a lot of them are going to wind up as reluctant salespeople. So like, what kind of advice would you have for, for people kind of finding their footing? Because I feel like there's there's kind of that critical moment in between starting and setting the intention and getting good enough at something where it becomes satisfying in and of itself. So like, what would your advice be for somebody who's getting into doing sales with, with maybe people that are coming from advertising for the first time? Yeah, definitely. So the simple advice would just be to lean into the discomfort because, you know, those new experiences and those new environments are what create those new breakthroughs. You can't get from one level to the next by doing the same things that you've been doing. And so by leaning into that, you're able to grow and that discomfort you feel is what growth feels like. 
growth is not always a very sexy thing to deal with, but at the end of the day, it's something that you don't regret once you can look back, you know, a year later. And I've always likened that level of discomfort or growth to maybe if you're on a roller coaster or something, you know, think of the first time that you jumped on a roller coaster and as it went down, you know, you get these butterflies in your stomach and you're terrified. And then once it levels out, you feel a little better. But once you do it three times, four times, five times, those butterflies and that discomfort is still there and it doesn't go away, but you reinterpret it as something completely different. And you know that it's just a passing moment that you don't have to hang on to. So, you know, anytime that you have those thoughts of discomfort or even the good thoughts, not so much hanging on to them, but letting those thoughts pass like a flowing river. So long-winded way of saying lean into discomfort when you can. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also interesting. I don't know if we've ever talked about this before. There's this really famous psychological study. It was a bridge that was in Vancouver. Have you ever heard of this one? I don't think so. Okay. So I'll, I'll say this one and this will be kind of a, this is kind of fun on the subject too. So this is, um, I, I'll have to add this to the show. Well, actually you'll have to add this after the show, <laughs> but very famous study in psychology. So basically they had a, this like really narrow, cruddy, like Indiana Jones style bridge, like across this, uh, you know, this chasm. And I think that the study was done in Vancouver, Canada, but basically they had people rate their emotions, how strongly they were feeling it and trying to ascribe them. Right. So the control was just, you know, a standard. I think it was just like a phone interview with something like that. But the, the experimental position was they had a very attractive member of the opposite sex explaining the directions on doing it. So oh. the funny thing was that the people, the, the intensity of the experience was relatively the same across both conditions. But the people who had the very dry bones, like reading the directions type situation, interpreted it as anxiety and fear. And the ones who ended up having the very attractive, you know, single lab assistant that was doing it interpreted it as attraction. So in a lot of senses too, our like fear or like, you know, there's some people kind of describe there's just, there's only really kind of one physiological emotion. It's just basically arousal. Right. So, and, but like, you know, some people in, interpret that as anxiety, other people will interpret that as attraction. Other people in, interpret it as readiness. And like, it actually kind of reminds me of this other thing too, is like this crazy Mike Tyson video where you're talking about how <laughs> terrified he was on the way to the ring every single time. But he's like, yeah, yeah. but the closer I get to it, the more stronger it gets. And then just go and kill people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and from the marketing standpoint, because I was diving in head first, you know, when I was in my first year and I felt like I wasn't qualified and, you know, dealt with the imposter syndrome thing, I had to learn to change that feeling of anxiety from I'm feeling nervous to I'm feeling excited because the feelings themselves are exactly the same. But I think when you can reframe it in your mind as something that you can use as a tool versus something to try to eliminate or hide then that can really, you know, propel you into the next stages in ways that you might not even have thought. Yeah. And it's super interesting too. Like, I feel like we've had a lot of podcast situations too, especially people that are doing things at the high level. And if you've made it this far, like, oh man, here we go again with like all this mindset stuff. But like, it really <laughs> is so key to succeeding at the highest levels of things. Like once you have the, you know, one-on-one level of your website or your ad or your copy and stuff like that. It's like really this, the empathy, how you're showing up, like this is what actually makes a difference on a day-to-day -day basis. So I wanted to uh, shout that out to all the naysayers out there. <laughs> Switching back to a little bit more tactical though, let's, let's do a little bit of a speed round. What do you see that you think that attorneys should do more of? What do you see all the time? Do you think attorneys that should do less of when it comes to their digital marketing? I think attorneys should make themselves more visible just from a front-facing perspective or maybe a video perspective, I think once your potential client or even existing client, they see you talking 
it almost feels like you know that person once you see them talking enough. And this is sort of the kind of local celebrity persona. So if you're running an ad as a lawyer or an attorney and somebody sees that ad four or five times, once you get to speak with that person, they put you on such a pedestal because they've seen you on the internet everywhere, just like you would see somebody on TV, like your, you know, your local news guy or something. So I think more attorneys should just put themselves out there in a, maybe a video format or in a way that makes people feel like they know you. I would say one thing that attorneys should do less of. That's a good question. So I guess without overthinking it, I would say they should do less of their own marketing and they should leverage. <laughs> they should leverage no horse the, in that race. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, it just goes back to as a lawyer, if you're a really great lawyer, then you're not expected to be an equally great marketer because that is a, an entirely separate skill that takes time to foster and become really great at. It's not something that you can Google and YouTube your way on a few videos into mastery. So you might learn a few cool things and a few tricks of the trade, but it, it's something that does take a little bit of time. And I think that common misconception happens because there's such a low barrier to entry to marketing and copywriting in general. You know, anyone thinks that they can just write any old sentence out there, but they might not understand anything about the customer avatar or about their unique selling propositions or about having a good headline or call to action. They might just be spewing out whatever the first thing is that comes to their head without any research. So I would say if after all that, you still decide that you want to become your own marketer, I would at least take the time to leverage that as a skill and understand that it's not something that you learn overnight. Yeah. And do you bring up a really good point too? Cause it's like, you know, there's a difference between covering a page with words and making those words actually change somebody's mind. Right. And like the point that you and I are at, like, it's, it's stuff that we've invested years before we even met each other. Right. Like we've both read the greats. We've both handwritten the great direct mail pieces in history. Like, you know, <laughs> we've both on, you know, webinars from other people that we try to keep tight, listen to podcasts and reading books on this stuff all the time too. And it's like, you know, it's, it's possible to do it. Like, I don't want to say that no one can do it, but you know, you got to have respect for the craft at the end of the day. And like, you know, at the same time, it's like, I'll say two different things right now. It's like, you know, if we're talking about the realm of, of legal advertising, if you want to be up on Google, you're competing against other probably pretty well-funded attorneys locally. And if you want to compete on Facebook in a lot of ways or YouTube or, or you know, any, any other kind of, you know, more of a push-based platform, you're not competing against other attorneys. You're competing against Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and, you know, Buzzfeed and anything that's competing for people's attention. So like, you don't want to write an ad that's better than the guy next door in terms of the attorney stuff. It's like, you have to write an ad that's more captivating than BuzzFeed. And, you know, you can do that. It just takes some time to get there sometimes, you know? Exactly. And I would say from a high level, if you're only operating at, let's say, 75% proficiency in a particular skill, then how can you expect to compete with somebody who's firing at 100% proficiency? You just have to foster those skills and do it the right way, the same way that those guys that are at 100% are doing. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, you know, you don't even really get to see the benefits too. It's like, you know, you can't jump a chasm in two small leaps in a lot of times too. And it's like, it's not until you get to the better levels. And it's like, you know, I think there's a huge crossover between, you know, art and copywriting and persuasion and that thing. Cause it's like, you know, the best stuff going from 90 to 99% doesn't make something 9% better. A lot of times it makes the results 10 times better, but that's just kind of the level that you have to get at too. And if you quit at 85, you're never really going to know. So that's, that's kind of, it's a tough gambit for a lot of people to take. I have to say, 
<laughs> but um, switching gears a little bit too, as far as like kind of things for for people to, you know, I think there's a couple different ways we can go for this, but just random questions as far as like, you know, books that you've been really enjoying recently, either around mindset stuff or around creative, around copy or anything like that. Like, what do you think would be good for for stuff that uh, good follow-ons for anyone who's, who's really resonating with this stuff? So to this day, I've always recommended Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss to people mm-hmm. as a read. It is a bit of a beefier read, but it compiles all the interviews that he's had over the years and puts it into bite-sized little wisdom. Each interviewee has about three or four different pages given to them. And most of the questions are pretty uniform. And it's interesting because the questions that he asks aren't just questions that he just thought of out the blue. Like this is another thing that's been informed by making tons of mistakes and years and years of finding out what gets the best answers from people. So if you're looking for you know, mind-blowing wisdom on a regular basis, then I would say Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Okay, super cool. And um, yeah, for anyone else, I'm trying to think, uh, well, this could be fun. What, what should we do for a CTA? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear more from Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I would say for a CTA, if you wanted to hear anything more from me, aside from being on Case Yule's mailing list, <laughs> I do have a podcast called Completely Creative. And all that Completely Creative does is we're making an argument for all things creative, whether that is something that's significant, like mindset, or something that's very specific like getting from point A to point B on a particular subject that's been requested by the audience. But that just goes back to what I'm saying about creativity being as important of a skill to foster as you can possibly ask for. Because if you think back to even your childhood, where we're all born with this sort of innate curiosity and creativity, and as you get older and the world tells you no more and more and you get jaded by these traumatic experiences, and you might not even recognize them as trauma, but these things collectively over time can be corrosive to that creativity where you're told to be realistic or told to color within the lines. And I just find that the people that color out of the lines and don't succumb to that, that ideology tend to get a lot further in, in any field that they decide to you know, spend their time with. Okay. Awesome. And I'm seeing the connection a little bit more too, because it's like almost, it's like the mindset's kind of like playing the, uh, you know, the defensive bar, like they're the offensive line for the, uh, you know, your, your creative mind. And I'm really stretching this metaphor, um, <laughs> before this gets any worse, let's call it. <laughs> um, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I will see you tomorrow, but for everyone who's listening, I will see you next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the law firm growth podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.